All right, so here we go again. Um, another podcast, and I am Hiller Latoya. I'm the artistic director of DNA Theatre, and I was also its founder, oh, sometime more than 30 years ago. Now, across the table from me is sitting a young man whose name is Zach, which is fine, but he's got this extraordinary surname, which is Love Time, which just makes me wonder whether girls and boys come up to you all the time and go, oh, um, is it Love Time now, Zach? <laughs> I wish. So, um, it's also um, a, a, a different sort of podcast, um, which is kind of related to the last podcast that we did. And that is that um, um, I was speaking with, uh, what's his name? Michael. With Mike Reinhardt of Elephants Collective about a show which he, uh, which I had never seen before. And now um, you're going to be asking me questions about my work, which you have never seen before. Mm -hmm. And bef just before I let you start... Um, I should say that sitting to my left, or our left, is uh, none other than Magda Vasco, who is the associate artist at DNA, and her job is to uh, keep me um, as honest as possible. Correct. Unless she wants to throw in bits and pieces of, of things herself. <laughs> okay, go. Okay, uh, so the homepage of your website says that DNA is radical theater. Uh, how would you define radical theater? How would I define radical theater? Well, I can't really define radical theater. I can only really talk about what, why I think that DNA is radical theater. And... Um, among those things are the fact that instead of having this audience and uh, performer separation, often um, the performers are intermingled among the audience. Okay, so that's one thing. Another thing would be that normally theater tells, a, or a play, when well, normally theater is about plays. Well, we don't really do plays, almost ever. And plays tell stories, and they're about things. Whereas, I think it's kind of radical that we don't do that at all, that we don't tell stories, that there is no narrative, and, um, and, Whatever work we do, it's not really about anything at all. I mean, if you want to decide it's about something, then you just go ahead and decide that. But um, um, I think that's radical. And uh, there was one other thing I was going to say, but I forget now. <laughs> oh, darn. What was that other thing I was going to say? It'll come back. Damn. <laughs> Um, uh, can you tell me what uh, made you decide to create Paula and Carl based on real-life serial killers uh, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka? All right. Uh, 
Just give me a moment and let's see if I can get that third thing back because that really does irritate me. For sure. Um, what could it be, Magda? What makes DNA radical? Oh, I've got it. And that is that um, uh, normally in theater, what happens is this, is someone speaks, somebody else speaks, somebody speaks, somebody else speaks. Whereas I create a polyphony of voices often. There are many voices going on at the same time. And so therefore, well, that's what you get. All right, um, good. I'm glad, glad I got that out of the way, Paul and Carl. Um, I got really, really interested in the whole Bernardo Homolka thing when it turned out that she was very, very, very complicit and involved in all of her husband's delightful exploits. That's what really, uh, it, that's when I went from being, you know, kind of curious to, wow, because, you know, we still uh, think of women and men being uh, different species, and, uh, and we don't think of women being capable of cruelty and torture, whereas the bottom line is, they are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they're just as good at it as men. Absolutely. Uh, did you face any ethical dilemmas in bringing the not-so-distant past uh, on stage in Paul and Carl? Ethical dilemmas? In that... Um, the families of the victims were still very much uh, grieving over, over that. Um, I wonder how much I would bet you that they never, ever found out that this sweet, tiny little subversive, radical theater <laughs> called DNA mm -hmm. was doing a show called Paul and Carl. Um, I don't... I would be surprised if they ever found out about it. So, no, there was no ethical question mm -hmm. about it at all. And, um, uh, but I will say something, and that is that um, how are you asking me a question about the ethics of doing a piece about Paul and Carl mm -hmm. or whatever their names are when in fact they were headline news for months and months and months and months and months and months and months. Absolutely. So like I don't really see any difference between the ethics of discussing this whole thing um, on the radio, on TV, uh, in the newspapers, and so what? A play? Mm -hmm. I think I, I asked that question because I am working on a concept right now for um, a show about, uh, I don't know if you remember back in 2008, 
the beheading of Tim McLean on Greyhound bus by Vince Lee just outside of Winnipeg. Okay, now here's where you're going to have to go a bit slower and say For names sure. slower. About a beheading? Uh, yes, on a Greyhound bus just outside of Winnipeg uh, in 2008 of Tim McLean by uh, Vince Lee. Uh, it made international news. So anyway, I drove past that bus living in Winnipeg uh, while this was happening. So that's been something that's been in my mind ever since. And recently, Vince Lee was released from uh, jail because he was not mentally fit um, at the time of it. So he is uh, allowed to be on his own now. Uh, so I am very interested in creating a piece of theater about that. And I'm facing some ethical dilemmas in that, uh, bringing that back to the forefront. If this were, if the show were ever to get any larger than a very small independent production. Well, my first reaction to that is, then why don't you face that dilemma when your show goes viral mm -hmm. um, and just create the thing? I mean, just do what you feel that you need to do as an artist that interests you, that you want to do, that you, that you want to express yourself. Just do it. Don't worry about what anybody thinks of it. Okay. That's some really good advice. Yeah, um, it makes me also think of, uh, uh, I can't help myself, um, and that is, it's got something to do with writing. Are you familiar with the writer Gore Vidal? I am not, but I will write that down. So, Gore Vidal is an American writer, and I think he died, actually, maybe last year or something like that. Anyway, um, he had his uh, a dictum that was, that I absolutely adore. And as, as far as he was concerned that, uh, about writing and style, there were three points. One, know who you are. Two, know what you want to say. Three, then just don't give a damn. <laughs> Okay, um, so I read on your website that one of your artistic goals is to create new theatrical languages. Do you think that one area of production, such as lighting, sound, text, movement, can be separated from others, or do you think they're too inherently entwined? Oh, that's the easiest question to answer <laughs> of all. They're completely intertwined. Mm -hmm. And that understanding that they are intertwined is one of the big problems facing uh, a work in Toronto. As soon as you take the position that the text is equally important to the lights, is equally important to the sound, is equally important to the performances, to the costume, to the um, space, as soon as you deal with everything at a level of equal importance, good. I completely agree with that. And uh, I also really like, uh, you know, when 
the lighting designer is in the studio the entire time. The sound designer is in the studio the entire time. It's being created as one process rather than trying to separate them because... Hello, Magda. <laughs> yes, we have gone through this. Yes, We have gone through this? That's right. Yes. So, um, the bottom line is that when I do my work, I do not draw lines in the sense of saying, you are the sound designer. Mm -hmm. You are the lights designer. Now, you can talk all you want about sound, but don't you dare say thing about lights. You're the lights designer. I couldn't care less what you have to say about sound. That's not your department. Okay, so my attitude is the absolute opposite of that, and that is that if you are involved in the piece, then you have got absolutely every right to speak about any aspect of the performance that you wish to. I, that sounds like a very good uh, way of doing it to me. Do you, do you have somebody who in the end uh, usually um, completes one area of it or is it just all completely done together? I have the final word on everything, period. Okay. So I just I get all kinds of input, mm -hmm. and then um, I uh, very often talk it through with Magda or with someone else or with someone else, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and then we hash it out. But the ultimate decision it rests on my shoulders. So if you didn't like the lights, don't blame the lights designer. Blame me. In fact, if you didn't like anything about the show, blame me. On the other hand, if you love the lights, then congratulate the lights <laughs> designer. If you love the sound, congratulate the sound designer. Very cool. Do you have then in the program, is there somebody listed as a sound designer or lighting designer? Yes. Okay, cool. Um, Cute, by the way, you said something. Uh, no, I use human beings yes. too. <laughs> <laughs> On occasion, I'm sure. Um, how does your training as a classical pianist affect your work in theater? Well, that's a really good question in the sense that I feel very strongly about something. And that is that you are going to be a better artist if you familiarize yourself with another discipline or two or three. So if you want to be an excellent writer, there is no reason why you should not also give painting a go. Um, if you want to be um, a sound designer, then I don't understand why you would not want to pore over astrology books. Now, I meant to say astronomy books. Um, I, I think that um, the, oh, what's it called? The relationship between, you can only learn. You can only learn by, by uh, moving into other disciplines and applying things. 
So how exactly has my training as a pianist, has a pianist affected me? Um, well, I'm going to say two things. First of all, I get, I hear this all the time, and that is, Hiller, your work is so musical. Um, and they're not just talking about the sound design. Um, it's got to do with just the dynamics of the entire operation of the performance. Um, the other thing I wanted to say, and now I'm looking at Magda, mm -hmm. because you used to be a ballet dancer at the National Ballet of Canada. Mm -hmm. And I think you and others understood that I got it in the sense of the enormous discipline that a ballet dancer has to subject oneself to just as a concert pianist or a, an aspiring concert pianist has to uh, subject herself to. And that is hours and hours and hours and hours of work, whether you feel like it or you don't. Uh, Judith Rudikoff mentioned that you use uh, musical scores in your theater creation process. Can you tell me a little bit more about this? Sure. Who's Judith Rudikoff? Judith Rudikoff uh, is uh, my professor at York University for uh, this course that I'm taking, uh, Contemporary Canadian Theater. All right. So you're interviewing me because I'm not dead. <laughs> Um, it is very true that a number of works that I have created have necessitated the creation of a score that looks like an orchestral score. And the reason I do that, there are several reasons I do that, but one of them is that um, it makes it very simple, for example, for Magda to know when she appears on stage and when she leaves and when she comes back and then leaves again. And who else is on stage and what music is playing at what else is happening at the same time. Exactly. So your cue to appear on stage might be the moment after Elizabeth leaves, or it might be five seconds after the Schubert Symphony begins, or it might be after that horrible light goes on, then you count to 10 and you go. So um, it's all, it, it's, it, it's just a great aid in uh, telling, people, you know, when to enter, exit, and what else is going on. Now, the other thing is that um, it also gives me a perspective of what the piece is, because in the ideal of worlds, I can see the score at 100% at, um, of it at one glance. Granted, I may have to step 30 feet back to see it, <laughs> but... Um, then that gives me a picture of 
of what I have constructed and I have always insisted that if the score itself is, I'm just going to go out there and say a thing of beauty, then I've done a really good job of constructing the piece. And if there, if there are problems in the score and I don't like that corner or that section, then it behooves me to pay attention to that and to fix it. That is such a cool concept. I've never heard uh, of anything like that in from anybody else in theater uh, before. I love that uh, it really connects different disciplines of arts together. That's very, very interesting. After the interview... Uh, I just wanted to say that this also shows Hiller's relationship as being a concert pianist, mm -hmm. the musical scores, and how he creates the piece of theater. And if you remember, after uh, this blah blah blah, then you can say, Oh, Hiller, can you show me a score? And I will. I would love that. Um, so you said in a documentary called The Madman and the Ballerinas uh, that you don't really care what people think of your work. Do you mean by this that you don't care if people like it or not? You don't care whether they are affected by it or something else entirely? All right. Um, number one, a, 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 our first principle is to create works that are deeply affecting. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't mean uh, cats and dogs being deeply affected, but human beings being deeply affected. Now, how they are affected is ultimately up to them and not up to me. Um, they can love it or hate it. It's totally up to them. So I suppose that's where you get this business of, I don't really care what audiences think of it because I, I'm not programmed that way. I'm, I'm not, I'm going to say it again. I am not programmed that way. I am not a pleasure machine. I am not a gratification machine. I'm, I, my job is to do the very, very best I can in creating what I want to create and whether people like it or they don't like it, that's really up to them. And frankly, I couldn't care less because what really matters is whether I like what I created, whether I'm happy with what I created, whether I think I've done my very, very, very best to create the very best I possibly can. And I think that also um, uh, relates to not only my personal happiness, but I mean, I mean, hello, man. I mean, if we create an installation together, mm -hmm. what do you think this is about? Hiller being all happy and Magda like not being happy? <laughs> I mean, that's ridiculous. <laughs> so yes, you basically want to, to uh, yes, of course, the number one person is myself but because I've got the last word, but then above and beyond that, everybody else who is involved in it, yes, of course I want them to be um, happy about um, 
what they've uh, created. And if they're not happy, they bloody well better speak up. There are very few videos of you and your work online. When we spoke on the phone last week, you told me that this is intentional. Would you be able to elaborate on your reasons for that? Okay, well, one, I'm not a technological person at all. Two, I'm a very private person. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't really care. I mean, I care enough that the work is preserved, but I do not worry about people. I mean, I think we've got a tremendous problem in 2016, and that is that there is so, 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 so much out there. Like, who really cares? I mean, maybe my view will change at this point, and I certainly am concerned about the fact that um, that DNA's legacy be preserved. And I'm the more and more I look into it, the more and more horrified I get because apparently hard drives self-combust, um, um, uh, uh, memory sticks self-combust. Um, I'm wondering whether all of the hours that I have spent actually in um, uh, uh, cleaning up videos is not just an utter waste of time because 50 years from now, they're not going to be around. Very irritating. No, yeah, that's a terrifying thought. <laughs> Uh, I was unable to find any information about uh, DNA's first production tip trick other than a picture on your website. I looked uh, all through a lot on Google. I looked on LexisNexis and other archive websites. Would you be able to tell me a little bit about the show? Um, it, let me just go back to uh, your previous question and just say that um, there are very, very few videos of my work, and I'm going to say any work that is comparable to the live experience that comes at all mm -hmm. close to it. So that's why I'm not exactly uh, trying to flog my work over the internet. I think my work, uh, my the, the work that I do with video um, or the or what remains of DNA on video should be looked at people by uh, people who really care about um, uh, DNA theater um, and, 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 you know, graduate students, whatever. Um, you wanted to know about Triptych? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you want to know about it? Uh, I, you couldn't find anything, I any information. All I could find was one picture on uh, DNA's website. And other than that, every, all the research I did, I didn't find anything on it. Right. All right, well... Triptych was for three people. They performed three separate poems. They were engaged in equally sized rectangular spaces separated by ropes. Now, then there was a 
big distance between the performers and the actual audience. Now here I was earlier talking about audience intermingling with performers. I've just done way, way, way too much work to be able to generalize, okay? So this is an example where um, I went the total opposite and tried to create a big spatial difference between the three performers and the, um, uh, and the audience. And basically, uh, the the poems that they did, I mean, were were split up and fragmented and and I don't know. I'm I'm going to say orchestrated. And uh, what else do you want to know? They all started at the very very back as far as possible from the audience. And by you around the three-quarter point, they were like straining against those ropes, trying, trying, trying to get into the, uh, trying to get close to the audience. But of course, that proved to be an exercise in futility. And then they receded, and then it just slowly dissipated and evanesced. And that was about 30 minutes. Okay, that's really cool. I just kind of wanted to know how DNA started off. That sounds like a really amazing, fascinating show. Well, the, the first thing, the DNA, uh, uh, I mean, I think Triptych was probably show number five or something like that. The very first one was um, Pound, for Pound. And, and that was... Um, um, that was a really crazy uh, show. That was that that really was a crazy show. That that I'll say it again. That was a crazy show. The audience was totally intermingled with the performers, um, uh, it, and uh, the show began before anybody entered the space, and the show ended after everybody had exited the space. And we did this on Queen Street, um, uh, Queen Street West in a, uh, probably like, I don't know, a five block walk away from here. And, uh, and it was an art gallery that was divided in two. And we did some of the stuff in the front part, the beginning and the end. And the uh, overwhelming part was the middle part, which was in the backspace. And... Um, and yeah, just imagine people's bewilderment when when they thought that the piece had ended. It was like over, et cetera, et cetera. And then they there's this narrow corridor, and then they get into the uh, the front part of the space, and oh my god, there's like all these performers, and they're doing stuff. The show isn't over. Fun. That sounds very fun. Uh, that. Very make, much makes sense how the idea of you know filming a, a DNA show would be impossible. You would never get the that kind of experience. Well, it's not only filming a DNA show; it's experiencing a mm -hmm. DNA show. You can't get all of it. Something like that. You simply can not. Absolutely. I mean, I guess that's the point of live theater. That's the point of live theater. Otherwise. You know, it would be it would be film, but you don't get the same feeling from film as you do from live theater. Yes, but I think that is a tremendous problem in live theater these days because 
our attention is, um, uh, okay, number one, always something has got to be happening. And, and, and everyone in terms of lights and sound has to assist in making sure that the audience looks this way and then looks that way and then looks this way and, and that way and heaven forbid that there be, you know, any stretches of pauses or whatever because those are dead spots and who knows where the audience will go in their imaginations and maybe they'll want to go home or maybe they'll think about having sex with their girlfriend or maybe, you know, and, and, and that must be, the you know, no, 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 you cannot do that. You know, you come, you come here to see my show and, 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 and uh, you, you, you must not di have your um, attention diverted. You've got to uh, always be with the show until I finish the show. And then, well, I suppose you can think about something else then if you want to. <laughs> yeah. I definitely find those awkward, those pauses to be the most exciting part of theater when you're not sure what's going on and nobody's telling you what to think. It's very exciting. Good. <laughs> I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm definitely, I'm very serious about that. Yeah. Good for you, because most people do not realize that. And I have written about pauses. Uh, Sky Gilbert and yourself have worked together quite often. Uh, both of you and your respective work have been called radical and eccentric. Do you two work well together? And if so, why do you think so? <sighs> <laughs> I'm just going to say, read my book. I will, absolutely. It ain't been published yet. Uh, then I will not. <laughs> but I, I, I just uh, recently finished uh, writing uh, my uh, first book, and it's called The Magnificent Sky Over DNA. Hmm. And I, 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 I write about everything that he... Uh, has uh, seeded, has given money for co-production-wise. I've written about every piece that he's been in, and then I have written about his own, uh, some of his own plays and his memoir and his, him as a political activist, and 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 then all the abuse he's taken. My God, no, I adore Sky. Um, but what did you want to know? He was great to... Pre I mean, I've directed him on... I, I can think of at least three shows. He was fantastic. He was absolutely fabulous to direct. He was just... Um, I think part of it has got to do with his total faith in me as a director. And then another part is that um, uh, he just takes direction very well. He just, he just does it. Okay, I think that answered my question. Good. Um, AIDS is a topic that comes up multiple times in your work, such as in Sick and Last Supper. Uh, is there a particular reason for this? Well, yes. Um, the thing is this, that... Um, oh, how can I say this in the best way? The thing is that in the early part... I did a lot of work um, uh, with Ezra Pound poems, and then I also um, did Hamlet, and I wrote my own play, et cetera, et cetera. 
And then I thought, why don't I, instead of trying to execute a vision, why don't we get together and create something together? Why don't we talk through this whole thing about this hysteria about AIDS and, and uh, what is it? What does it mean? What does it matter? Um, uh, the devastating impact, a lot of it on artists, by the way. And, um, and so what really happened with AIDS was that I completely changed my approach to creating theater. And uh, instead of having this overarching vision, um, I started from ground zero and, and uh, worked with people. And, um, and then uh, the, as a result of that, we had a show um, called The Panel at Rhubarb. And then we had a different show, uh, a much expanded show uh, and different um, at Palmerston, library. Um, however, it was with the Last Supper, and that was the last chapter, as it were, in the AIDS uh, trilogy uh, that I really did do uh, what I, uh, I did have an overarching vision. I mean, I wrote a play, <laughs> and that was actually a play. I define queer as differing from the norm and questioning society's ideas of acceptability. Under this definition, would you consider your work to be queer? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I can't really, can't really say the DNA is queer theater because automatically one would have the uh, implication of uh, sexual... Mm -hmm. I'm just going to say deviance for the sake of it, even though it's not deviance at all to be queer. But, uh, but it is perceived by so many people to be deviance. I mean, homosexuality is a very, very bad thing. I mean, come on, let's face it. <laughs> all right. Okay. So, um, yes, and um, uh, I really like what you said, Mr. Zach, when uh, I asked you about, um, uh, uh, you made some reference, I said, what turned you on about DNA? Like, mm -hmm. why are you bugging me anyway? Um, what, what in, so what turned you on? And you said something about the querying of theater, uh, the querying of ballet, and I can't find it right here. But, um, oh, wait a minute. By querying of ballet, I just meant that your radical ballets, from what I've heard, and the bit of it, video of footage I've found, seem to change and radicalize the idea of what classical ballet is or needs to be. Um, I could be correct on this. Yeah, you're correct on this. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very interested right now in, in the idea of questioning and querying the idea of what theater and other uh, artistic disciplines needs to be and what the separation is between them. Uh, my theater company that I'm just working on founding right now is called uh, Query Theater. So, but Q-U- How do you spell it? Q-U-E-E-R-Y. Okay. Queering and a query. So, queering and questioning nice. the idea of what theater is, should, and needs to be. Right. So, yeah. 
very, I, I saw a lot of, uh, in your work, the, the ideas of, um, this questioning what theater is and what ballet is and what music is. And I, I found that so interesting and very relevant to what I want to do. Yeah. I mean, why bother doing, why bother creating if you're not going to like ask yourself these, these questions, like, you know, what am I trying to do? What is, what's, what, I mean, ugh, I'm not putting myself very well right now, Magda, Magda help me. Like, what's the point? What, I, I mean, it's just like, what's Why? the point of doing what everybody else is doing? And what's, the, and, and if you're not going to sit down and examine what it is that you're doing and what it is that you want to do and why why you want to do it and how it could be different and it and how does it deviate from the uh, history of let's say theater how does it subvert let's say ballet how does it make um music uh different from what you've heard before like yes um what made you interested in creating work in the realm of ballet as opposed to theater? <laughs> All right. Um, okay. Um, I was very fortunate as a child because I got taken to the symphony and the ballet and, and uh, various other things and I just thought that ballet was, uh, I'm just going to say a turn-on. It was just a very interesting thing to see. It was a completely different thing. I mean, it's an art form without words. Never mind the modern day where now words can very easily be incorporated into modern dance and ballet. But certainly at that time when I was growing up, which would be in the 1950s, 60s, etc., um, ballet was an art that was all about expressing uh, uh, without uh, words. that You use the physical body to express and the fact that ballet has got a very um, codified language that is understood equally well in South Korea as it is in South Carolina. So, um, I just thought that was very, very interesting. All right, so at one, okay, so I think a very, very important thing happened to me in 1987. And that's when we went, uh, that's when DNA Theater got invited to do This Is What Happens in Orangeville at the Festival du Théâtre, whatever it was called, Festival du Théâtre. All right, mm -hmm. so. Now, I had the good fortune of finding um, out that soon after there was going to be the first edition of Festival de Nouvelle Danse. And um, there was a fellow in Montreal who really championed my work, and I got press credentials from a magazine called Theatre, which so anyway, there it is. I had a place to stay and I had free tickets to every single show. And I just, I, I went 
I, I went and saw as much as I possibly could, and I came to realize that, um, that just like we were talking earlier about the importance of sound and light, for example, what about movement? What about dance? Why cannot movement and dance be incorporated into a work of theater? Okay, so two years later, so yes, I wrote about that. And then uh, two years later, they had their next uh, uh, iteration of the festival. And I, again, had press credentials and I wrote about that. And then the third time they did it, I also had press credentials. So, but I never did write about that. Okay, so that was really my beginning of understanding that here was another um, aspect of theater that was actually essentially ignored. In, um, in other words, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say it's either theater or it's dance. Mm -hmm. So why can't we have um, a, a melding of the two? So I started, um, so I started thinking about that and I started actually doing that. I started choreographing, if one could call it that, at its very early stages. Uh, but I always had a thing for ballet. And um, uh, I think it was in 93 that I worked with the, my first ballerina. So what I started doing was I started injecting ballet into my work. And after I had been doing that for a decade, I said, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to actually make a ballet. And I did. And she was in it. I was. <laughs> yeah, I've been really interested in, in dance lately uh, as well. Uh, a friend of mine who I go to school with, she's studying dance at York, uh, Sophie Dow. And uh, Sorry? Her name is Sophie Dow. Um, she's actually from Winnipeg as well. Um, but... Uh, recently she asked me to do some writing for a piece that uh, she's doing. So I'm going to be doing some uh, poetry and some uh, theatrical writing and probably performing in the piece as well in some way. So I'm very excited to be starting to, you know, dip my toes into the, the way that dance and theater can become one. Good. More power to you. Thank you. More power to you. And of course... What's also fascinating is that dance embraces such a wide, 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 wide range. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on, let's face it. People were dancing tens of thousands of years ago, right? Like, what, do you think people were not dancing back then? Of course they were. Mm -hmm. Well, it's so interesting to, to think when the idea of dance and the idea of theater became two separate things when they would have started off as the same thing. I don't know my, uh, uh, my, uh, my history as well uh, to really comment on that. I think I'm just basically talking about the fact that at one point or another, human beings learned how to talk. Mm -hmm. And then also they learned how to move. But yes, I think that you are right in saying that um, 
um, somehow there, uh, there, that split did occur, but I will bet you something, Zach, and that is that there was much more dance in ancient Greek, ancient Roman, uh, uh, theater mm -hmm. than there is, uh, today. I would, I would bet that you were correct on that. Um... Typically, your work pushes boundaries that often make people feel uncomfortable. Do you think that putting people in situations they would rather not be in forces them to face certain realities? You know, I really don't think about how people are going to react. In a way, I'm answering the same, I'm answering uh, an earlier question in exactly the same way. Uh, to put it a little bit clearer, I do not go. Oh, I think this is going to make this, those two people who are sitting there really uncomfortable. Yes! <laughs> I don't think that way at all. Um, and uh, nor do I do, think mm -hmm. uh, the opposite way, which is, wow, those are two wonderful seats and they're just going to love being there. Um, I think the people... Uh, I think the issue is basically uh, that people are so different from each other mm -hmm. that you can't really, you can't really... Uh, expect. Expect. Yeah. Yeah, you can't, you can't go on this premise of people will find this funny or sad or, 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 or uncomfortable... Um, so I don't know. I think the answer to your question is no, I don't think I've ever set out to, um, piss people off, but I mm -hmm. certainly am aware that, um, uh, people are going to probably get very annoyed and irritated and frustrated by, mm -hmm. uh, certain parts or certain elements of the work that I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think uh, in, in the idea of un uncomfortability, uh, I, I like uncomfortability. So I, I don't think that would be seen as something that would be irritating, although it can be. Uh, if I change that question a little bit, um, uh, do you find that uh, creating shows that do have these moments uh, for you and for your company uh, forces you to face certain realities through the creation process? No. Okay. I, 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 I don't know. What do you think, Magda? I don't think you do. I don't, I don't think you think along those lines. Yeah, I just don't think that way. Okay. I'm, I, I, yeah, I just, I have a vision and my job is to um, uh, execute that vision and also to amend that vision whenever necessary, but I don't think that I'm on this, like, route of discovery. Mm -hmm. Okay, very cool. Um, from what I've read, uh, DNA does not have a set performance venue. How do different venues affect your work? Okay, so, you know, this is a very important issue that most people do not pay any attention to at all. And that is that Whatever work you do 
demands a venue that is opposite to the work. So, let's take a couple of examples. Paula and Carl took place in Paula and Carl's apartment. Um, she alone took place in a room with uh, holes in the wall mm -hmm. for audience uh, to see through. Mm -hmm. uh, Wit in Love, which was... Um, a, a Wit in Love is a novella by Sky Gilbert, and um, one of the chapters, one of the characters was inspired by myself, and the action took place in the kitchen of the brother. So where am I supposed to do this show? Well, I've got to do it in my kitchen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, that's very cool. Very, I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for is, but makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. It, it, it does, and people just don't, don't think uh, along those lines of, okay, well, this is the nature of the work. What is the ideal place for, what is the ideal place, the ideal space for this work to be performed in? I mean, my God, I've certainly done some work outside. Well, and so many times shows that you see in theaters should not really be taking place in a theater setting. They would be so much better in some other sort of setting. I worked on a show this summer um, in, the, in the Fringe Festival um, that was about... Uh, children growing up through uh, kindergarten through grade six. And, I mean, the only logical place to do it was at a school. No, I was just going to say, yeah. well, where is, your, where is your public school? Where is your public school room mm -hmm. or two? And it would have been a completely different show if it hadn't been done in, in that space. So uh, it's, I think like site-specific and shows that happen outside of the theater are usually way more exciting than shows inside of a theater space. Yes, because I think that it gives it a, um, a veracity. Mm -hmm. and, and why fight against veracity? Why do we have to have this suspension of disbelief? Why don't we just get rid of disbelief and just have belief by having, as you said, that show take place in a schoolroom or in a school? Yeah. And yeah, it may not be easy. You may have to fight hard to get it, but but you got to do it. It's worth it for the for the overall piece. Oh my god, I just can't resist this. You know how frustrated I was with Bagatelle. Yes. Because what I wanted with Bagatelle was to have the audience to have the uh, performance space to be so wide that you could never that no one in the audience could see 100% of it at the same time. And, um, and um, uh, well, it's very miserable what happened, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, that's a perfect example of saying, this is what I want. This is what's appropriate for the piece. Mm -hmm. <sighs> <laughs> uh, and it's so important. Go on. <laughs> Uh, I've read on your website that DNA is on hiatus right now, 
Uh, your website briefly mentions that the re reasoning behind this has to do with the Arts Council's lack of funding. Can you elaborate on this a little bit more? Oh, yes. <laughs> you want to get me started on that one? Well, apparently. All right. So, I have... So, Magda, cut me short, because I, you know I can go on now for an hour. Yes, and you will not. Okay. So, you're going to help, you're going to help me. Um, oh, I'm just so irritated by this whole thing. Now, I've been doing, okay. What really, really triggered me off on this is my last work, which is Red Light, Green Light, which is my boy ballet. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... Did we have problems getting money for doing a workshop? Not at all. Did we have problems getting money for doing the production itself? Yes. It was ridiculous. How long was it? When I first got the idea, and it was a pretty well-formulated idea, mm -hmm. idea that I shared with you. Go on. The idea happened in 2007. And uh, the process of application after application took five years. Wow. Yeah, it was either five or six. Five or six. Granted, the process got interrupted by wit and love. Yes. But, whatever. Um, it took an enormous amount of time. Now, There were so many things that were so upsetting about it. And part of it... Part of it has to do with the fact that I've been doing this work for 30 years plus, And I don't get credit for that at all. Which I think is kind of ridiculous. I think there comes a point where you should be recognized as a senior artist and, and, and you shouldn't have to go through the same kind of, prom, uh, the same kind of process as you, Zach, mm -hmm. have to. Okay. Now, the other problem is that these decisions are made by juries. Now, Zach, some of the people on these juries are younger. They were not born mm -hmm. when I did my first work. So, there used to be a time when the councils would have a really decent peer jury of something like a dozen people. Now it's down to like five oh. or six jurors. Well, that's a problem. It's a far worse problem that you're going to run into, Zach. And that is, do you think those five could all be men? I would say that's fairly likely. No, it's yeah. impossible. Because we live in an era of political correctness. So, 
you can have two men and three women or three women and two men. Mm-hmm. Now, um, we also have to take into consideration the fact that, um, do you think it's okay for those uh, uh, boys and girls to be all white? No, I would say no. Of course not, because we're in a multicultural society. Absolutely. So we have got to have some people of color. Um, more and more uh, is the issue of the Aboriginal people from whom the country was stolen from. That would be good to have an an Aboriginal person, wouldn't it, on a jury? Now, um, uh, and then there's this whole business of, um, gosh, are you gay? Are you lesbian? Are, Are you bi? Are you transgendered? That's a really important part of our mix of society. So, and let's not forget demographics. Do you think that these three guys and two girls could all be from Toronto? No. Of course not. This is the Ontario Arts Council. This is the Canada Arts Council. So what you end up with instead of what it used to be, which is you'd have 10 people sitting around the table and it didn't matter what color they were, all that really mattered, all that the uh, theater officers were concerned with is, is this person really good? Is this person really qualified to judge the merits of these applications? You've got a situation now where it's just like, okay, we've got four people, and um, okay, we need to get one more person, and uh, God, they've got to be from Sudbury or North Bay or, or, or somewhere around there, and by God, if they could only be gay or, or transgender or whatever, and so you end, that's the person who ends up being on mm-hmm. the jury. And it's got, sure, the person may be a so-called theater professional, but there's no way that that person is a peer of mine. Mm-hmm. And the other problem, of course, is that everybody has got their own agenda. So, Let's pretend you're black, Jack. I mean, Zach. <laughs> We're not playing poker here. <laughs> <laughs> or are we? <laughs> or are we? <laughs> well, um, you've got an opportunity as a black man to... To... To pick. You help. Go. Well, uh, you would have the opportunity to pick... Mm-hmm shows ideas that would relate to your history or your racial diversity or a topic of your choice um more likely than oh some weird small bizarre subject that you're like well i I, i'm just gonna go with something 
I'm more interested in. Mm -hmm. And everyone else will think the same way. Exactly. Everybody. I'm gay. I, I'm going to support the gay stuff. I'm not going, I'm not going to... Who cares if that piece might end up being better or that piece might... This piece is gay, okay? This looks like provocatively gay. Totally gay. I'm all in. Mm -hmm. And this got nothing to do, really, with um, uh, the, the merits. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try and stop now. Yeah, definitely. I think we, we cover that. Yeah, definitely, definitely problematic to be picking something just because of that. I mean, it, it definitely is something that needs to be thought about, but having a panel of, of only four or five people it would make much more sense to, rather than making the panel smaller, expand it and exactly. have more people of, like, diverse, um, more diverse people, but have a larger panel and yes. have a better discussion. Oh, and I can't resist also saying just one thing very quickly, and that is that I remember speaking with the main, the lead theatre officer at Theatre Ontario, and I said, you know, like, how come there's no one on the past juries that have been judging my work that are like roughly my age that would have actually have seen three or four of my shows? <laughs> and the thing is that the, the, uh, it, it is so screwed up, in my opinion, at the Ontario Arts Council, because on the one hand, it's all about, hey, do you have an idea to do a show? Put in an application. So the end result is you're going to get 120 applications. Then, what senior artist is going to slog through 120 applications when they're going to get paid, I don't know, I'm going to say $600, $800. I mean, it's just, it's just not worth their time. Mm -hmm. So that's another huge uh, issue. Yeah. And, of course, the third issue is that they seem to be absolutely monomaniacal about trying to give as many grants as possible. Great! That's just fantastic. You can go to the, you know, the board and say, we gave out all of these grants, but the bottom line is that nobody gets what they ask for, and so therefore, all of these companies have got to have got to compromise on A, B, C, and D in order to do their work, and as a result, the work is. Uh, um, inferior mm -hmm. as a result because they were not able to execute their vision and very very few people have got the guts like I do which is to say you know what didn't get enough money we need to get more money we're sending it back yeah and believe me I have done it again and again well I'm sure yeah it sounds like a very problematic um, system yes <laughs> to say the least uh, so your website also mentions that DNA has uh, been up, what DNA has been up to uh, while on hiatus, including your podcast endeavor, which we are now doing. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about uh, what you've been doing artistically while not uh, actively working with as DNA? Writing. Okay. Writing. 
writing. Lots of writing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, your book, other things? Um, let's put it this way. It's all arts related. Mm -hmm. And uh, generally what I end up producing is this admixture of memoir and uh, criticism and um, an expression of my beliefs of what theater could be, should be, what I like theater to be, and what I, I'm really irritated about. Ditto dance, ditto ballet, etc., etc. Um, in one of your podcasts, you referred to yourself as the best walker outer of shows. Uh, what do you need in a show to capture and hold your interest, and how long do you give a show before you give up on it? Um, I basically, uh, I, I basically need to be gripped. I need to be captivated. I need to be thrilled. I need to be turned on. I need to be um, stimulated. I, uh, I, I need to be engaged in, uh, you know, multiple ways. Um, uh, generally speaking, um, at around the 30 minute mark, I go, hmm, problem. Okay, I'm going to give another five minutes, another 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then if nothing happens, then I walk out. But I will say, that some of the best work I have ever seen has had the first 30 minutes not be at all enthralling. And I'm so grateful that I stayed around for that extra 10 or 15 minutes because then I was like completely engaged. And when I came back the next night, I was enthralled by the 30, by the first 30 minutes. So yeah, you got to be careful. Mm -hmm. But um, um, yeah. Uh, you inter you've interviewed Michael Reinhardt of Elephants Collective uh, in three of your podcasts. Yes. Do you see yourself working with uh, Michael in the future at any point? Um, you know, that's a very, very interesting question. Um, uh, okay, if you would have asked me, um, is DNA Theatre interested in supporting Reinhardt? The answer is an unequivocal yes. Um, we had a brief conversation and uh, Reinhardt said something about an idea that he had that he wanted to work with me on. Uh, but we never got to that idea. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, I want to be very, very careful because I think Reinhardt is amazing. And the last thing I want to do is to uh, create problems for him. So that's my answer. Okay. Uh, Sorry, I don't know at all if we would work well together at all. Um, I'm, as I said earlier, uh, it's just like, I want the last word. Right. 
and I don't know if uh, and uh, whereas elephants is a collective, mm-hmm. so ostensibly they arrive together. Right. You should also mention that you have mentored Michael and helped him with ideas and concepts. And oh yeah. So in that sense, you have been definitely. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I go and see his work, and then yeah. I come home and I just make notes after notes after notes after notes after notes. What happened after that show after Strindberg? I said, Magda, come over. How long did we sit here drinking? Like an hour and a half? And all we could do mm-hmm. is just talk about the show? That is true. Like how often does that happen when a show is so stimulating that all you want to do is talk about it all the way home uh, and then come in and have a drink and then have another drink and have another drink and you just don't talk about anything else other than the show? Yeah, shows like that are extremely rare. I haven't seen any of uh, Elephant Collective shows yet, but I, I definitely, after hearing some of your podcasts and hearing you talk about the shows like a little bit, I'm definitely going to make sure to see their work in the future. Do that. I'll uh, do my best to let you know when they're doing something. Please do. That would be awesome. Um, what excites you about art installations when compared to theater? Well, they're two completely different, mm-hmm. uh, different um, beasts. Two completely different creatures. Um, you know, um, it's an unfair question. It's it, it it's equivalent of saying, um, um, uh, why do you love steak and why do you like grilled salmon? Okay. What if I cut off the, uh, when compared to theater, what excites you about uh, art installations? Ah, well, what excites me is that they present a completely different kind of challenge. And if you know anything about my work, then you will know that I have gone from one challenge to another, to another, to another, to another, to another, to another. My God, making my first ballet at age 50 without ever being in, ever having attended a ballet class, for God's sakes. I mean, that's just ridiculous. That's, you know, but it was a challenge and I rose up to it. Mm -hmm. And then I made another ballet and uh, it was very, very different from the uh, first one. And then I made a third ballet, and that was very different from ballet number one and two. But you wanted to know more about installations. I think that um, it's just a different set of rules, a different set of, uh, you just set different, it's just, com- it's just, compl- it's just a, it's just a different animal. It's just like a painting versus a sculpture, a sculpture versus a photograph. A photograph, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's just a different uh, discipline. It's mm-hmm. a different discipline, and that's what turns me on. Is okay, like you know, like can I do it? Mm-hmm. Can I, can I, can I do it? Am I 
Do I have an idea? What is the idea? Can I expand that idea? Can I develop it? Can I get, a, can I get Magda interested in it, etc., etc.? It's just, uh, it's just, uh, uh, <clears throat> your mind is in a kind of a different sphere mm-hmm. when you're dealing with, uh, with an installation because mm-hmm. you're dealing with completely different not utterly completely different things. I mean, you're still dealing with sight. You're still mm-hmm. dealing with objects. You're still dealing with... Light, sound. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so you've told me that uh, you don't have much experience in uh, using technology. Uh, technology is becoming a bigger and bigger part of today's theater creation. How, how do you feel about that? Oh, let those who love technology bury themselves in the technology for as much as they want. Just leave me out of it. Fair. However, um, don't think that I don't appreciate um, uh, technology when I sit down with Richard Windeer. Or when Hillary and Magda sit down with Richard Windeer and we can work in thousands of seconds when I can work with Rebecca Pitcherak with lights in tenths of seconds. Is that a turn on? Yeah. I'm falling in love with the idea of uh, microphones on stage and uh, the idea of, of changing your voice, doing all this, but having it all happen live, uh, watching the person on stage actually do uh, like these these things rather than it, it happening somewhere else. I love the idea of this um, very transparent, like this is what's going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. <laughs> um, and this is my last question here. Uh, do you see DNA creating uh, as a company again in the near future? Yes. Good. Well, I, I look forward to seeing that next time DNA has a production. Like the questions. (laughs) All the best to you, Zach. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for this interview.